Welcome back to Having a Gas, the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries. And today, I'm having a gas with John Paterno. Today, I'm having a gas with John Paterno, a superb mix engineer and the first one that uh, I've had the pleasure of working with. And so it's good to be speaking um, on these terms, John. But first of all, yeah, thanks for the help you gave us. It's my pleasure. It's, uh, it was great to to get hooked up. Uh, our friend Andrew Sheps introduced yeah. us. Absolutely, he did. And it's a, a real, um, there, there was a real quality difference working for the first time with someone who is, of course, also uh, a Grammy winner as well. So um, how long did that take you to uh, get on the trophy cabinet? Uh, I got it in 2004. And I got it in the most, the most interesting way. I, I worked with this great uh, Latin artist named Soraya. Some friends of mine had recommended me for the gig. And so I flew to Miami, we cut the whole record in three days, and then we mixed it in LA. And come Grammy time of 2004, she was nominated for Best Singer-Songwriter Album of the Year. She won. And then somebody pointed out later, hey, that's an album award, so all the production people should get it as well. Yeah. So September of 2004, this box showed up with the Grammy. Oh, right. So it just came as a sort of like a stalk dropped it off in the night. Exactly. Yeah, it was perfect. So no, no stress of wondering if I'm going to win it or not or competition or any of that stuff, which is never why I got into any of this anyway. Yeah. So it, it just showed up at, at just the funniest time in my life. And, and so it was perfect. <laughs> yeah. Did um, you, you know, you said that's not why you got into it. And why? So why did you get into this business, John? Because I get the impression that a lot of people who end up becoming mix engineers, most of the ones I've spoken to, they come in around the back because they started off being musicians. Well, I did. Uh, I I was a, uh, I played, I played guitar since I was a little kid. Mm-hmm. And coming out of high school, I was really interested in electronics and music, both. So I started going to school to be uh, an electrical engineer. Um, my dad didn't really want me to be a musician. He had made that kind of clear early on. Yeah. So without giving away was... without giving away your age, what kind of year are we talking there? We're talking uh the mid 1980s. Right. Okay, yeah. So 85, 84, 85 in there. So I spent a few years at community college trying to get my uh just trying to figure out what I was doing. I got a job at a music store. I was doing electronic repairs in the store. So I was always interested in the technology and the music aspect at the same time. And then I read about this program at the University of Miami, which was a, a music engineering program. And it was a major in music with a minor in electrical engineering. And I was one credit away from the electrical engineering part of it. But but I also I had to get into the music school. Yeah. And uh, and I was the definition of how do you get a guitar player to turn down? You know, you give right. them a shot. Yeah. So I somehow, I don't know how to this day, I got through the audition to get into music school and made it through the first semester. And once I got through that, then I was on my way. But I was, I've always been fascinated with recorded music. The first music I ever remember hearing is the Beatles and um, the count off of I Saw Her Standing There. Yeah. That alone, the fact that you could always put that on and have that same intensity, the same energy and that same excitement, I think I've always been hooked so so yes that's my roundabout way into it um of course it's always the same the same affable north northern northern trying voice going one two 
three, four. Exactly. Exactly. How cool is that? Yeah. 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 Always. And to this day for me, and you know, I've, as we've already determined, I've been on this planet a little bit. So, so yeah, it's, it's really something. We were listening to the Beatles driving back from a family function the other day, me and my brother and one of his friends were saying, isn't it amazing how you can just put any of it on and instantly you feel happier. Like life is better. 100%. Yeah. We talked a lot about this with uh, Elliot Shiner. Um, he was saying that there was a, I, I, uh, I don't know what you think about this, a distinction with music of the 1960s with music of now. It could be a bit of a cynical assessment of saying that there was something going on then, 60s, 70s, you know, when the great rock and roll, the great pop music of the century was being made. There was something very sincere about about the music, about, you know, you, I'm trying to get a feeling across. And maybe this is... Um, you know, maybe it's, this is me putting my spin on it, that now you don't get that sense from pop music as much as, you know, the desire for kind of sheen and perfection and, you know, sounding like sounding like a star. Uh, does, that, does that make sense? Well, it's a different time. It's a different medium. And it's as much visual-based now as it is audio-based. Yeah. So, so there's that. There is something about the tradition of songwriters and songwriting. And, uh, you know, that was a time when people played the Beatles, for example. They earned their chops playing in Hamburg eight hours a night for, for, for weeks at a time. Yeah. You know, people don't do that anymore. There's, no, there's not an avenue for people to do that anymore as a group and to play it in front of people and to try things out. It's like comedians, what comedians go through now. Comedians can't go to a club and work up new material anymore because someone's always got a phone. They're always recording them. They have to be on right yes. then and there. So the whole process is so different. I, it, it, it's hard to compare, but you know, was it a golden age? I, I would say, yeah. And how much of that music is still part of our collective consciousness? You know, I, so listen, there's, a, there's this group Seals and Croft, you know, they had a song called Summer Breeze that was a huge hit for them. And that's one of those other songs. It's another one of those songs that when it comes on and granted, maybe it is, it's a generational thing, but, but there's this life, there's this energy, there's this way the song is put together. Um, for me, the way I look at it is I always feel like those records or, or my favorite records are the ones that invite you in who are trying to tell you something and tell you a story, but not trying to scream to get your attention. Yeah, and I think yeah. a lot of pop music has gone into the screaming to get your attention area. And, and, but some of it isn't, I mean, I listened to, to Kendrick Lamar's damn and completely sucked in. I mean, it's a great record on every level. Yeah, and we're so, all excited for the new one coming out next month. Yeah, I know. I know. It's going to be great, right? Yeah. So I will hopefully, but so, so, and I, but there's this thread of, of engagement that I think happens, has happened all the time. Like, I really like Ed Sheeran, that divided record, I think it is, that had like a bunch of really huge songs on it. Yeah. Engaging, endearing, something people can relate to. I, I, I think that stuff will always find its way through. It's the stuff that's trying too hard. So it's, that's the stuff that makes it a little bit harder to kind of see as a long-term, you know, part of the culture. 
Yeah, that's really stuck out um, the other day. I was at a cocktail bar and there was a guitarist playing an acoustic set. And it was pretty much what you could call the acoustic guitarist set list, you know, the singing <laughs> guitarist. So you've got um, some Jason Derulo, you've got some Marvin Gaye, you've got some of, what was it, some Bee Gees. But we noticed that there was basically nothing from the last decade. And we noticed, you know, you've got this, you've got this standard song, like the Great American Songbook from the 20th century. You've got this set of songs that is actually now aging. And I'm not saying it's declining, but for the same reason that now Great American Songbook stuff, Sinatra, Martin, Davis Jr., sounds right only in a certain setting, say mm. on soundtracks or at Christmas. I wonder mm -hmm. if that's going to happen to the great, like the great pop music that we enjoyed from the 60s to about 2010. I mean, everything does have its time. And and I think that that's a natural progression. The fact that the Beatles have endured as long as they have is pretty much a miracle. I, I don't I don't know that young people in their teens and twenties are getting turned on to that though at this point. I, I don't know. I, I don't really have a lot of interactions at this point with with that age group, but yeah. I mean, I could see it happening on one level just because of the the what you are saying, driving in the car and just having a visceral reaction to something. Yeah. And, you know, and that's a combination of the songs. It's a combination of the performance, you know, combined, which is the other big thing. I think people really relate to performances yes. at the end of the day. Yeah, and that is something that's different at the moment, I think, which is, and, and this is where I want to really get into your professional day-to-day -day experience because I've, um, I, I, I suspect that uh, at one point and for the, the first half, let's say the first half of your career, not making a finite limit for it or anything, but presumably you got into studios so late 80s, early 90s. Yeah, 90, I moved to LA in May of 1990. Yeah. Wow. So it's around Nirvana time, sort of never mind. That yeah, a little bit before that. Yep. Okay. And I'm guessing that for, let's say, that decade, the majority of what you were mixing, correct me if I'm wrong, were live sessions, you know, live performances, you know, live drummers, live guitarists, or something like that. Would you say yeah. that's fair? Yeah, yeah. Mm hmm. And I feel like now there's a preponderance of, you know, sample based kind of collage made records. Um, so. So there is a different way of making things. And you can hear when you're listening to the songs themselves that what you're getting is you've got, and it's not a criticism, but you've got a four bar loop and you have to make different sections over this loop. So how do you think that's affected the actual composition of the music? I think it draws from a different headspace. A lot of times this is somebody working on their own and there's, good aspects to that and there's bad i mean you know there was a guy called square pusher who did these incredible intricate records like on his own and then there's people who can barely play who cobble something together and are able to make a career having it you know in a music library somehow yeah. and you hear it on tv and it's awful but it's you know it's a wide breadth of of things but but so uh, to answer your question, it's a complicated question because it's, it's, it's just a different way of making records. And 
but if the inspiration is there, there has to be some type of performance aspect, at least to me, because otherwise it's just mechanical. Like that's and, to be a performance destination. You're going to play it live. At least you want to do that. Yeah, or it has to have some type of point of view. And this is the other thing. Um, I find that a lot of records that I get to mix that are like that, and even actually modern records that get passed around, because that's a big thing now. The drummer's in one place, and even you know, COVID just exacerbated the whole thing. But okay, the keyboard player wrote the song, so the keyboard player does their thing, sends it off to the drummer. The drummer does their thing, and then the bass player is in such and such a place, and you know, and it get, the record gets passed around, but there's no real point of view because everybody's got their sound, their setup, and they're not interacting at the same time. And if everybody was together, something very different would happen. Yeah. Because they're interacting. So my job as a mixer has become a lot of the time to make sure that it has a point of view, even though it didn't when it, when it showed up. So getting back to your, your premise, I think that the most successful of any of these productions have a point of view in mind as, as they're going on. So yeah, it's a four bar loop, but what are you doing to that loop? Or are you programming it from start or are you just grabbing some loop off garage, garage band, nailing a compressor on it and going, oh, that sounds messed up and okay, that's perfect. Or are you really getting into it and figuring out where the hits are. Are you really getting into it and adjusting the decay of the compressor so that it feels like it's moving in time with the music and all of these things that actually differentiate record making versus whatever you want to call what this is cut and pasting. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I mean, it sounds a little derogatory, but, but, but there is a difference I think between the people who are really paying attention to all the details and, and this comes with time, this comes with record-making experience, and sometimes it just comes with um, listening to a lot of music and studying a lot of music. Yeah. That's one thing I noticed. So I'll, I want to get back onto this because I like your idea of conceptualizing it as a point of view. And, you know, we were talking about maybe it's a four-bar loop. Maybe it's only a, a two-bar loop, like a... And that's just, that's all of, um, you know, Humble by Kendrick, isn't it? Musically, mm -hmm. that's all that goes mm -hmm. on. But there's no question, there's no doubt that that is a sincere performance with a message from an artist who has something to say. So yeah. it can only be a small loop. But I mean, that's what hip hop has going for it because it was born out of those constraints, right? It's like, we've got this to play with. Say something over it that will make it mean something. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and it, and it's a bit more, you know, I think you might have used the word earlier, collage. There's a bit more collage aspect of it that that when done right can be great. Yeah. And so uh and and you 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 mentioned something that I suspected that that this is where you were going, which is to say that um, we, we started with them, so let's continue with the Beatles as an example. Mm -hmm. When they're working out a song, and you've seen this in the Get Back documentary now, we have the real evidence of that, and obviously we want to dig that open in a second. Um, but you can see them saying, here's basically how I think it goes, da -da -da, some chords and words, and then they're all chipping in going, well, it could go here afterwards, have you thought about doing this? And then suddenly they're in this collaborative process where they're making it together, and it sounds like them. Now, and of all, not all George and Martin and... and um, 
Glyn have to do. It's not like all they have to do is record it. They have to have their genius as well, which they do. But now you as mix engineer have a challenge of making it sound as if that process has happened when it's been made remotely. Someone over here, someone over there, send it to a vocalist. Now you have to make it feel like it's all come from the same session. Exactly. Exactly. And that's that's the modern challenge of making, you know, of mixing. Yeah. So, yeah, there, it, 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 but it depends. So, like, so those kinds of pass around records, yes, that's it. Um, I just did a, a couple of records with a band called Government Mule, and, and it was a true kind of proper band. So that threw it more into the, into the old, older way of doing it, or the, yeah, I don't even, I don't want to say old, but it's just, mm. it's the player way. Let's call it that way, the group way. Yeah. And so that was a lot of that energy and that thing that, that I hadn't been around in a long time. So it was really fun because I didn't think I would be able to get to make that kind of record yeah. ever again. I'm going to bring up here the, um, the project that you worked on with us because <laughs> I, want to, I want to illustrate something about, the, um, about what, you know, what, what you had done with what sounds like the dynamic compression and things like that in order to make it sound like it, it's dancing, right? It needs to feel like it's got some groove that maybe, you know, uh, us as producers weren't able to put that in. Yeah, so we've got that. First of all, I wanted to bring everyone's attention to that. That, by the way, just sounds, that's the hugest tam-tam and drum hit I've ever heard. I'm going to hear it again. So first of all, when we got the mix back and we were like, how has he done that? He just made it sound like it was recorded in a concert hall. And <laughs> you didn't presumably just put a concert hall reverb on it. Yeah, well, yeah. I'd have to look exactly to see what I did, but... yeah. Um, it's funny, talking about this brings me back to this famous Motorhead saying. Yeah. Everything louder than everything else. Right. And, and my job as the mixer in getting those tracks from you mm -hmm. and putting it up is figuring out where's the, where, what needs to be accented? What are the big dynamic moments? Where is the pulse? Where, how does the song flow? And it was a really cool arrangement, the, you know, the, the way everything interacted, the way everything flowed. And I hadn't even looked at the video clip. I was it's just that, yeah. really going by the music. And for the benefit of the audience, should we just hear some of the groove that you gave to it here? Sure. So we've got some guitar, yeah, but then it's really where the drums come in. Now, what's interesting there is we've got the, I forget the technical names of the instruments, I've got them somewhere, but you really brought out this. And I was like, I hadn't even noticed that rhythm was there, but now it's dancing. Now it's got a groove. And so you have, you have to work that in with compression and with other techniques, right? Well, it's funny. You would think, yeah, compressor is the thing that gets it there, but a lot, most of the time, and it seems counterintuitive, you have to really pick your moments for the compression aspect. If you don't, everything gets flat. Right. And um, I'd have to look at the session and see exactly what I did. I, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't think we would talk about this. Otherwise, I would have opened it up. No, but, neither did I. <laughs> but, but your project is a great example of all of these elements are there. And 
me doing my job is finding these exact things, these interactions. I find a lot with most people making records nowadays too. They never pull down the faders and start over. And I ran into this years ago and I swore I would never do it again. I was working on a record with somebody in Pro Tools and we did the basic tracks and then we just overdubbed and overdubbed and overdubbed and kept overdubbing. And it's one of the few records I never completely finished. It's probably the only, that's probably two. I think that I never, one of them I never got asked back to. And I found out later that it wasn't the artist. It was the producer who didn't want me to come back. But then I got a call from Robbie Williams, a and guy and ended up with a couple of years worth of work out of that. So that was fine. Brilliant. And this other record, I, yeah, I just, I, it never dawned on me to find the record again. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you, you do this basic track and then you're doing an overdub. Oh, it needs this. Oh, it needs that. And you just keep adding layer upon layer and you kind of forget where you started. You forget about where the important elements are of the groove and of the melody and so I ran into that with this artist and, and then we just really went off the rails. And so she was unhappy and I was kind of over dealing with running around in circles. And when I look back on it, I wish I would have pulled down the faders because had I done that, I would have found the record again. Yeah. So, you know, if you're on a time crunch, if you're writing for a client or if even you're working on a song and you're spacing it out over a couple of months and it, that's a lot of time to second guess yourself to add things to kind of overdo things without constantly reevaluating where you are in the process so i think part of what happened with my mix was i just found some stuff that you forgot about yeah you know and and i, I, I and that's really what happens a lot of the time or um, or I hear something and it might be happening in the same similar frequency range as a bunch of other things. And then, okay, well, how do I get this to stand out? And I don't know if I did this for sure on, on your mix, but sometimes I, I'll put, um, Sound Toys has this, per, this, uh, this uh, plugin called Crystallizer. It's a, uh, um, yeah, it's one of those crystal delay kind of it's, it's a, one of those really dicey kind of bright kind of choppy sounding delays yeah um so i have this preset that i developed that puts it up an octave whatever goes into it goes up an octave and i use it on strings a lot and horns so if they're not voiced in a way that they're really going to stand out i'll just blend a little bit of this in and suddenly it just opens it up and suddenly you hear the strings more, but you don't have to turn them up. It just adds this extra little bit. You know, it's probably distorting. It's probably, it is messing with the tone a little bit, but if there's just a little bit in there, it just gives you this hint. It's almost like that sound when you rub your fingers together next to your ears, you know, it just adds that little bit of presence. A bit of airiness, yeah. Yeah, and, and so again, discovering these things really makes that work. And then... To go back to the Beatle thing again, uh, one of my theories about why those records work is because the takes we hear are the ones where they just figured it out. Yeah. They were under such time constraint. They got in the studio. Okay, here's my song. Okay, everybody learned it. Let's play it down. And they play it down. And, oh, was that good? Everybody good? Yeah, great. Done. Yeah. Let's sing it. And 
Yeah. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? Because of the there's a, a concept that goes around about um, creativity being facilitated by no limits, and in many cases, the opposite is true. The creativity truly is facilitated by having a tight box to work in. Yeah, absolutely. That's always my that's my favorite yeah. part. That that to me is where I feel most creative is when there's yeah when the clock's running. So I noticed that when going back to the project you worked on with us, the turnaround was just immense. It was really, really quick. And so is that part of it? Do you give yourself like, okay, let's get this done as fast as I can? No, no. And and it's funny. Speed is something that um, I, I have this teaching thing that I do called mix therapy that I do uh, one-on-one mixing lessons with people basically and, and it's really a therapy session. I sit there and ask why a bunch. What are you thinking? Why are you doing this? Do you hear why when you do this, this happens kind of a thing. Yeah. And everybody always wants to mix faster. And that's not it for me. For me, it's being able, it's, it's a focus thing. I like to be focused on what I'm doing. And if I work on something for an hour or two, and then I don't go back to it for, you know, if I, if I go away for like two hours and then come back, it takes me a long time to get my head back into that space. So what happens with me is when I start working on something, it's like I'm a little kid. It's like I'm a little kid and I have a toy and I, all I want to do is play with the toy. So the speed is a byproduct of me just literally having fun and just my experience and knowing my tools. Yeah. And it's just like, I put up sounds like, you know, the, the Tam Tam, right? Is that what it was called? Yeah. The, the Tam Tam was the big gong at the start. Yeah. So like, you know, you hear a sound like that and you're like, Oh, I can do this and I can do this. And you know, so right away now I'm off, I'm off to the races. So my whole turnaround time, is literally because I'm having fun and and I'm in the headspace of this piece of music. So the faster we go back and forth, the less time it takes me to kind of figure out to get back into it again. Right, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, you know, like I, I'm mixing a song, uh, you know, I mixed 16 songs for this government mule band and so by the time I got through to the 16th song, they're referring back to the first couple of songs that I had done. And, you know, it's Pro Tools, so we're going round robin. Nothing's ever just, okay, we're done, we're moving on to the next song. It's like, okay, this one's close enough, let's move on to the next one. So they're referring back to the first or second song I did. And man, I have no recollection of how I got there. Right. Only because I, my head is so in it and it's just a reaction. It's a performance at, at the end of the day for me mixing. Mm -hmm. And time just, uh, time goes out the window. It's like you're lost. It's like any, it is a creative endeavor. And I'm sure you feel that way as a writer. You know, you, you get these ideas and then the one thing leads to another. And then before you know it, it's been like four hours and, and you've evolved, you've turned this thing into something really cool. Yeah. And so, so yeah, that's where my kind of speed comes in and, and it's just born of experience too. I, I, I did a lot of, there was a TV show in the late nineties, early two thousands called Ally McBeal. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of music in that. And I recorded a lot of it 
So it was a core band, this woman named Vonda Shepard, who was the, the main singer. We would record three or four songs in a session. So we tracked the band, we do overdubs, we do three vocals, we comp the vocals, and I would mix all the songs all in one day. Wow. And, you know, and I'd create stems for the, the dub stage, which we'll talk about that word in a, in a little bit too. Um, so that was so, the kind of pressure that your skill was born under. It's like, you got to get all this done in a day. Yeah. And, and high quality and make sure that stuff was done right. Cause you didn't want to kick back. Cause there's a, there's a lot of money involved and you know, there was pressure, but, but I thrive on, I love that kind of stuff. Love yeah. it. You know, I, I, I recorded a record at a club in LA called the baked potato with uh, this guitar player named Michael Landau. And I literally didn't hear a note I recorded for the two nights because I sat in the club with my laptop um, right next to a subwoofer and the band was literally five feet in front of me. Yeah. Um, But I know my tools and I know how to record. And I, I mean, I checked it after the first night in headphones to make sure nothing was blatantly distorted, but but all the sounds I got were just with Mike Priest. There's no EQ. There's no compression on things. And it came out really, really good. Yeah. But it, it takes a little bit of daring to, to just do that. But, you know, that, again, like it comes of experience. So that's something um, that is probably useful for the, the younger the younger engineers in our audience who are learning and who are, who are, who are aspiring to maybe a life in this, in this realm is that, you know, you've mentioned twice now knowing when not to do things at least twice, you know, you've said it's not all done with compression. You have to know when to use it. Otherwise everything comes flat. And also then you described an experience where the, just the, the, the tone that came out of the recording input was just perfect. No need to mess with it. And I feel like, I know the way that I learned, and I'm guessing a lot of people learn this way, which is, let's face it, when you're 19, you get a cracked copy of Logic, and then you've got all this, all these plugins, and it's just a box of toys, and you've got no music to mix with it. So you end up trying to put everything on everything, and you put 10 plugins on every channel. And so I guess the question is something like, do you think that is uh, going to slow down people's learning, this overabundance of tools to mess with? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I really believe, because this happens to me too, I get overwhelmed with the amount of choices. Like so overwhelmed that when I'm not working, it's not always fun to sit down and just play with something because um, sometimes there's so many choices and then you don't necessarily see the end result right away. And you go okay, it's like, where do I start? And that can be daunting. What's great about getting tracks from people to work on, it's like you see where to start and you you kind of see where everything goes. And people are different. Some people can sit around for hours and sit around and just play with with the tools. Me, I would much rather sit around and spend that time listening to music. Yeah. Because okay. I'm learning more from arrangements and performances and ideas of how things are put together. That's just where my headspace is, as opposed to sitting down and learning what everything does in, in Logic or Pro Tools. Yeah. 
but you have to start somewhere. And, and the other thing that happens with people is they start watching a lot of YouTube videos. And of course, everybody's an expert, but there's no context. Yes. And this is where you have to dip the, the, the kick drum to get it to sound right. This is where the vocal sound is this. And people buy into this. Um, you know, I love my friends who have templates out there, but those are their templates. And they're yeah, their yeah. templates for a reason because it's how their brain works. Yes, yeah, that's what they've learned over the years. And, and it's there to help them play. That's the whole point. And so it's great that they share them. And when you get to a certain point, yeah, you can glean some ideas off of them for sure. Oh, yeah, look, he's thinking of it that way. Oh, how cool. Maybe I could apply that to my thing. But what a lot of people are doing is they're just kind of, oh, well, I'm, I'm using that sound. That's what they used. So, of course, it's going to work on my vocal. Yeah, but they recorded their vocal with a, you know, with a real Telefunken 251 through a, a Neve or an API preamp through an LA3A and, you know, in a good sounding room with a singer who can sing. And, you know, so of course they're going to do like a half a DB at, at 2K to bring the vocal forward or, you know, a little bit of 16K, of course. But if you're singing on a cheap mic in a terrible room and with a really cheap mic pre. Yeah. You know, it's like clipping and distorting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, but I want to add one other thing that said, all of that said, if there's a great performance on the under end, on the other end of that microphone, nothing else matters. Yeah, that's what we're all aiming for. Yeah. And so that's the thing to always keep in mind is that it's the music we're trying to make, not the sound. And you 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 said this to us when we were corresponding on the project, you know, you said it's not just dropping tracks into lanes because there's all the other things that turn it into a piece of music from merely being a piece of audio. Yeah. And um, yeah, there's there's a, a little dichotomy. I was I wanted to get your take on there because you you um, you were just in that area, which is uh, I feel like the good mix engineers, the experienced ones, the people like you and like Sheps, you know how you want something to sound, and I feel like the amateurs, the you know from the world that I'm from, you just know how you want it not to sound. So what I mean is, you go, oh, that vocal has too much 500. Ah, pull that out. And you're like, well. What's behind that uh, that frequency range? Oh, there's nothing. Now there's a hole in the mix. And I feel like the excitement that you were speaking of is because you, you've got this, it's like, ah, I know what this is going to sound like and I just need to do this and push that down there and get this out the way, yeah? There is a bit of that, definitely. And it's, it is that discovery process of putting it together. That That's the excitement factor for me. And, you know, a, a lot of people also, there's this thing, well, I'm going to take out this frequency from here because I think it's going to obscure this thing over here. Uh, there's a whole generation of people who side chain the bass off the kick drum. When if the damn bass part was done in a way that made sense with the bass pattern to begin with, you wouldn't be side chaining anything. You wouldn't need to. Yeah, because the arrangement is together. And that's the other small, that's another little area that as a mixer, sometimes I have, you know, I got to think about this stuff is not working together. So uh, drums, perfect example, you get a drummer who's not very good. 
and you're trying to get the record to groove. How do you do that? And, you know, the bass part might be good. And, but if you put a slap delay on the drums, if you put um, either a slap delay or if you put a time delay, say it's an eighth note delay against the groove, and you either nudge it a little slower or a little faster, depending on how it's feeling, you blend it in a little bit. And suddenly the drums are rolling and it feels like it's got something going on. And then as soon as you mute that delay, suddenly you go, ah, oh, your shoulders just fall, right? It's not as exciting anymore. So I, I think people get caught up in the interaction of things and they're trying to carve out this. There's a phrase of some company that at one point was high pass everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the worst idea ever. You know, find the things that are causing a problem, deal with them, and then see where you are. Because a lot of times, if you deal with those things, suddenly it all does come together. And, and that's something I find a lot, too. And a, a lot of people do this. It's like, well, I, I took out the blah, 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 because it was getting in the way of the other thing. Yeah, but don't you hear how the other thing, there's a big hump at this frequency, like right above that. And if you took that out, then suddenly it would all work together. And, and I think these are the things people miss. And I think you, you learn by doing, but you also, you also learn by studying records. You have to be listening to music. Yeah. yeah. And try, trying to derive from what you're listening to, what makes it great and how you could achieve the same thing. Uh, and uh, again, keeping in mind uh, the technological context, you know, we've been talking a lot about the Beatles the concept of side chaining the 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 kick into the bass to get those frequencies out of the way that was that was not on the table then and yet it still sounds great so you have to keep in mind that just because there is a widespread solution doesn't mean it's actually making everything better exactly exactly and i get we live in the information age and if i want somebody's opinion on on any topic i'm sure i can find a dozen YouTube videos. Yeah, this is the way to do it. This is the way to do it. But, you know, again, it's like without context, everybody can be an expert until there's context. And then that is what separates the people who really understand it versus the ones who are just kind of fluffing through it. Was there a time when you were still, um, you know, you, 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 what was your development like? Was there a time when you would still be given a session to mix or you were still learning how to mix and you would meet that frustration that a lot of us get where it's like ah this the, the sound sucks but i just don't i can't i can't i don't know immediately what it will do that will make it better oh man it still happens all the time right okay this is this is my mix process this is great i can't mix a salad this is yeah. great i i how is anybody ever going to hire me again this is great Oh man, I don't know. And then so, okay, it's done. Th right. That's it. And so we all go through that. I, I don't think, I think most of us do that. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And I, I think you also get to a point where you realize it's, if you can take your ego out of it and allow the music to kind of tell you what it wants. I know this is getting a little, a little off, but the record will tell you what it wants you to do, or at least that's the way I look at it. And if you let it, then everything kind of works out. 
like like your 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 piece everything was there that that needed to be said it was just a matter of making it speak the way it 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 wanted to be heard that that's the way i look at it and so so i i think it takes just some time and some confidence right there's a fear factor and you know there's a cautiousness that we all start off with we're afraid that it's going to sound bad and once you lose that fear then it becomes like i said playtime yeah and it's something i encourage people to do a lot you know when you open up uh, an aux sense say you're 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 hooking up a reverb and you you engage your aux i default my auxes to zero not to all the way off because i want when i hit play that first sound to be a blast of whatever it is because it's going to challenge me to say right away is that cool is it not cool right because otherwise towards it. i'm going to start and i'm going to creep it up and go oh i can hear it that must be okay mm. as opposed to like there it is oh and nine times, not nine times out of 10, but a good percentage of the time, you'll end up leaving more of that effect than you would otherwise. And if you are of a conservative nature, it's a great way to get out of that because records are bold. The Beatles records are bold. Most of our favorite records are bold. Spike Stent's mixes are bold. Um, you know, what's that uh, Harry Styles tune, Adore You? It's a great mix. It's really cool, and it's it's got depth, it's got width, width, it's got all of these things that make mixes, at least to me, exciting. And it's not overblown. It's not, he's not using, it doesn't sound like he's using stereo wideners or any of these tricks to kind of make, you know, because I hear stereo widening and I hear phasing, and it sounds terrible to me. And there are a couple of mixers out there who use it on every mix. And I sit there and I get 30 seconds in and it's not, you know, Spotify is bad enough to try to listen to music on because it's so phasey, mm -hmm. but then you get, you listen off title or you listen off something that has a really good Kodak. And, and even then, man, it's just like, oh, I can't listen to this. And that sucks. And talking about records that, you know, longevity and all these other things, I mean, I can't imagine I'm the only one that has a visceral reaction. I think I'm a little more sensitive to phase than most people, but, but, you know, so there's that camp. And then there's, like I said, the, the spike stent, that particular record, I think it's great. I think arrangement wise and, you know, the subs that come out of it in a spot and then this, this, the width, the depth, everything I love in a mix and I want to hit play again. And at the end of the day, that's really all we need to strive for. And you were saying there before, if, um, someone's trying to achieve like you said a wider mix you would um discourage them from going to something like i don't know the waves s1 stereo widener which is just a knob with a graphic on it that goes because all that's going to be doing is some kind of you know behind the scenes processing of you know offsetting two mono signals and just like phasing one slightly out yeah so it hollows out the center and it you can do this stuff mixing Chad Blake gets more width and more low end than anybody on the planet. And at least the time I spent with him, 
which was a lot of those seminal records that he's really famous for. No stereo wideners. I mean, it's mixing. And, and people don't want to put the time in. It's like they're trying to be fast. They're trying to just get it done. And uh, uh, so I think that I think that you, what, what people really need to do is just slow down a little bit and just evaluate as you go. Yeah. Um, Bob Ludwig had a quote um, about the best records are the ones where people made the best compromises based on the situation. And I, I always took that as a really cool way to look at it. It's a series of choices you make. And as you make these choices, that's what forms your record and forms how it gets from point A to point B. Yeah. Because if Andrew mixed the same piece I mixed for you, it's going to be different. There's going to be elements that are the same, but he's going to hear things that he's going to gravitate toward that maybe I wouldn't and vice versa, you know, and that's, what's cool. That that's what would, that's the personality aspect of it. There's, Sorry, uh, I'm starting to ramble here. No, no, it's good. It's good. This is what we need to hear. Cause you know, stuff and I don't, that's why I do this uh, series. <laughs> so um something that and, and case in point we read we being me and the other people in this studio we uh read something that waves published earlier this no i don't know when it was it was about how to mix with depth without using delays and reverbs and again i thought that was kind of a bold thing for waves to be publishing because they're a plugin distributor and they weren't mm -hmm. saying use our plugins they wouldn't they were saying none of that and um so we uh we only just got familiar with the concept of um, let's say, you know, like the vanishing point, the idea being, you know, you have left and right, that makes things sound close, but the further away you go, I'm not saying it's a rule, but it's wiser to keep it close to the center. Does that, you know, does that, does that scan with you or does that seem like a simplification? Again, like context is huge. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think, so it's saying without using delays or reverbs. Yeah, just to create depth without going for the, the the easy tricks to make it sound like it's in a big room. Well, I think you have to think about what are the things that make things sound more present and closer to you. And usually that's treble or presence area and low end. Yeah. And so I think if you want those sounds to sound more forward, I think those are the ones you that need the presence in the low end. If you want something to sound a little farther back in the speaker, it's got to be duller. There's got to be a little less low end. And I, I think if even with that concept, you can you can maybe layer things a little bit just, just by that. So I don't know about toward the center. I, I think you can get I think you can make something sound big in the center and small on the sides. Yeah. You know, by by what I just said, I, I think you can literally. Yeah, don't magnify the things that you want to feel like they're they're a little bit farther back. I heard, I did this thing recently called Unboxing Classics, and it, I basically listened live to, uh, or I was videoed live as I was going through the multi-tracks of Marvin Gaye's Let's Get It On. Oh, wow. And it was fascinating. It was so cool. But what I didn't realize is how many tracks that are on there that you barely hear on the record. Like I had to go back and listen to the record. You know, there's the famous wah-wah guitar part, but there's a whole other guitar part that happens. 
and it's so low in the mix, you barely hear it. There's a piano part on there that you barely hear. And so, you know, here's the thing, like somebody made choices. Somebody decided, oh, that guitar part is, is not something that I want to feature. So what is it? It's dark and it's dull and it's down in the mix. So I, I think that there are a lot of ways to do that. You have to, you have to decide what's important to your mix and that's what you highlight. That's, yeah. that's, that, uh, that's a say, normal. Sorry, I'm keep running no, the cut. idea sentence. No, no, go uh, ahead. Go ahead. The, um, would you say that's another area where there is a, uh, you know, that, that we were talking about creativity being born of limitation and that's something that needs to be emphasized in making records that there's a limitation of what you can have sounding close to you. It's like, you know, there's only a limited amount of space there. You know, you can't have everything sounding like it's right next to you. Maybe again, that's an oversimplification because I spoke to Yoad Nevo who was saying about all hip hop being in mono, it's to make everything sound close and loud. But regardless, it's like that, you know, that, that that's something that looked to me earlier this year, like that's a choice you have to make. There's, you've only got so much space in terms of sheer sound pressure to have stuff up close and present. But you can say that same thing about Beatles records. Yeah. I mean, Sgt. Pepper and Mono, any all those Beatle records, right, were all done in mono. And you hear every part that they intended you to hear. And so so that actually that that's a really great. I mean, it, it's a good way to look at it. And I can see that with hip hop records where. You, the cool thing about a lot of hip hop records, too, is that there's not a lot going on. Mm hmm. You know, it's about the performance and about the groove. And there's not 50 tracks of background vocals. There's not 12 guitar parts that you're trying to sink in and make them all happen. It's, 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 it's about the performance, it's about the message, and it's about moving your feet. And granted, that, that, that may be a gross simple, simplification, and I'm sorry to anybody out there who thinks otherwise, but you could say the same thing about the Beatles records. I mean, you could say the same thing about any great record, right? It's about a performance, and it's about moving your feet and about a groove, For especially yeah. we're talking pop records, right? Yeah. And um, so if you think about the Beatles records, I mean, what's great is they were eventually issued in stereo or they did stereo mixes and mono mixes. But you can hear how drastic the EQ is on a lot of those elements. And you would never do that on your own. But they did it because they had to get the stuff to speak in mono. And that's a really good lesson as well. And something that I do occasionally is I'll mix for an hour or two in mono. I'll get my pans where I think they should be. And then I'll put it in mono and I'll just push it to make sure I hear everything. Yeah. And, and this is the other thing about modern mixing. We are so attached to what we're seeing on the screen. Oh, I added 3dB there. Oh no. Oh man. No. Oh, I, I raised that vocal a half a dB. Oh yeah. I heard that. If you close your eyes and make those things, you're going to add nine dB. You're going to raise that vocal a dB and a half because now you're listening and you're not being suckered into the, to the screen. And that's another huge thing I think people run into. Do you think that's um, something that is better learned by mixing on console to use your ears? Yes, 
you have metering and that's fine. And, but the idea of being able to use your ears and trust your ears, the most important thing anybody can do, as far as I'm concerned, if they want to be a good mixer is to have a good listening environment or have a set of speakers or headphones that make sense to them. And, and I don't mean make sense to what it is you're working on. I mean, makes sense when you listen to music that you think sounds good out in the real world, that you have a set of speakers or a set of headphones that sounds good to you in that way. Because that's your translations point, your translation point, your speakers. That's, that's how you get from your doing to out in the world. And that's why I can do a mix and send it to you and be confident that it's going to sound the way I intend it to sound. And I think if people spent some time figuring that out for themselves, instead of buying summing mixers and instead of doing all this other stuff, I think they'll make better records faster. Just get the listening environment right first. Yeah, I think that's super important. And, yeah. but then the question is, well, how do you do that? And it, it, it's tricky. It really is, is because most people now are not, don't have the the means to to build a real room, and to do it properly. And I mean, when I say properly, is proper treatment. I mean, the room I'm in now. I mean, it's not perfect, but you know, I have plenty of acoustic treatment around, and and I don't mix loud either. I mix because you get to that point where you turn up the speakers suddenly the room does get involved. It's, it's the physics of it. Yeah. And once that room does get involved, you have to ask, is it helping or hurting my cause? Yeah. And, sometimes, you know, sometimes we do this thing where it's like, yeah, we turn it up and it sounds great, but that's because loud sounds great. You can't really hear it. Yeah. And, and if you're trying to make critical decisions and your room has a hump or a ringing at 300 Hertz, you're suddenly going to, if you're listening loud enough, the room's going to fool you into thinking that you're adding too much 300 Hertz to your mix. The same way if your room is too dead, you're thinking you're adding too much reverb when maybe you're adding enough reverb. So there are all these things that you got to figure out. And again, that comes from listening. For me, it comes from listening to other music. The other thing that's really difficult about modern music is because it's so loud and so compressed and the mastering process distorts literally and figuratively what you've done. So finding material that is an accurate representation of what's going to happen is also tricky as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, like, I asked Andrew this the first time I spoke to him that if people are listening to reference tracks, reference mixes, and then trying to mix against them, well, they're listening to masters. And so you don't get to listen to people's pre-mastered mixes. So that contributes to the, you know, long discussed loudness war. It's like, well, I'm trying to mix to make it sound like a master. And then you'll give it to a mastering engineer. And some of them aren't wise, aren't so wise to go, oh, this doesn't need anything. It's fine. They'll be like, well, I still need to do my bits. I'm going to squash that even more. And MS it again, like, oh, it needs to be wider. So yeah. And we run into that whole thing. Yeah. Do you have like mastering engineers that you like to go to to because you know they'll do it right? I 
ended up mastering a lot of my own projects. I, I, I do a lot of indie records. I do a lot of things that are, are not major label budgets. And so I ran into this situation where I would work really hard on this mix because I believe in the artist and they're going to get their friend to master it for 50 bucks a track. And it's just like, you know, no, I, I, we're not letting that happen. So, so I started doing my own mastering and it started about 10 or 15 years ago. So I've been doing it a while at this point. Um, but there are people who I let like Bob Ludwig to me is the best engineer ever engineer period not even period. mastering right that right. guy that guy can take things and just make it sound like music in a way that nobody can and is that is that like uh, that's unique to the individual some people just get it yeah i think so i i think so um there's a guy named that i'd love to use named joe laporta who did um he did david bowie's black star record uh, yeah, yeah. and the vinyl version of that record sounds amazing um you know, I, there are other people I've used in the past that I really like. There, there's definitely there are definitely some people, but it's budget as well. It's and so if if I can't afford to go to one of these people who who I think are really going to bring something to the record, then I end up doing it myself. Yeah, it's also in terms of in terms of um, great engineers. I th I think I'm right about this. I think it's Al Schmidt's birthday, and you know that's one that everyone always refers to as a shining star oh completely i mean he was he was incredible to watch because you know he's like yoda it's like you don't doesn't really look like he's doing anything but he's so experienced that he just hits play and then wow there it is record yeah. done yeah um you know and the great engineers i've i've been around have been like that i mean chad blake uh kevin killen joe ciccarelli there there have been a lot of people i had learned for, from and that that was one of those things it's just like they they knew how to get it there and it sometimes it seemed really effortless yeah that's i mean that's the when people make it look easy, that's the frustrating thing because it makes you think, oh, I can do this. And you jump in and it's just not as easy as they made it look. Well, yeah. The first time I tried to uh, be Chad Blake, the first time I tried to get the Chad Blake sound, I failed miserably. Yeah. And at that point, I'm like, yeah, I, that's it. That's Chad. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. Do you know uh, Sean Everett? I know who he is. I've not met him personally, though. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I only asked him in case you could give us a primer. I'm, I'm talking to him in a few weeks. But, um, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, because I'm also doing research on the fly here. I'll have to. Do, I'll have. To, I'd love to talk to um, Chad Blake now. He's had a few mentions here. Yeah, he's. Yeah, I mean, he's he's something special for sure. And I, I got to assist him for four or five years. I think I was his assistant. That and was your apprenticeship. Yeah, basically, yeah, at a studio called Sunset Sound and Sound Factory. And he and Mitchell Froome, the producer, worked at Sound Factory a lot. And I ended up on a bunch of those records. Wow. Um, but getting back to your thing about references, that's always a slippery slope when you're trying to mix and then have the song that you're referencing in, in your session and you switch back and forth to it. That's something I really don't see the point because there's so many confounding variables that make this record what it is. And you don't have most of them. Yours is your record. Yeah. Yeah. So, so if you're trying to capture the spirit of it, then you're not going to, 
you know, getting that vocal sound is not going to make it sound like that record. You know, there are so many other things that, that, that make a difference and, and people hear things in such different ways. Uh, You know, it's like when I get asked to do the Led Zeppelin low end, I always laugh because I'm like, do you mean roomy or do you mean no low end? Is that because is that the thing Led Zeppelin has just not much low end in it? Well, there's not. And especially later on, as their records got longer, you know, low end ate up vinyl. That that's oh, yeah. that's 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 what eats up the depth and the width of a groove. So those records to get the amount of music they got on a side of a record, yeah, they had to roll off the low end. So wow. it's it's interesting, I I I think. Yeah. Um but uh, that that's the thing that there's so much illusion involved in this in the in this in the craft of music because as you said i i'm there i was even trying to kind of fact check it on the spot i was like but i'm listening to when the levy breaks in my head and i'm sure that has a huge kick drum but that's the illusion isn't it it's like it sounds huge yeah because it's roomy yeah it doesn't sound like big bassy 60 hertz like none of that no no and and bonham never wanted the mics close to the kid apparently so the the mics are away so you're immediately this. So we're talking about depth, right? So this is a nice segue back into that waves thing, right? Mm-hmm. Those drums are always going to sound like they're back in the speakers by virtue of how they're recorded. The mics over here, yeah. Because the mics are back. It's roomy. There's not a lot of presence. I mean, there's a crack. I mean, granted, I mean, it's bottoms, right? So you can imagine how much better it would have been standing in front of him versus the recording although the recordings are super cool but but because they're roomy the drums are immediately put into a space and notice my hands are going back into the screen because that's where they end up so then you put a di bass or a bass that's mic'd close and immediately that bass is going to sit in front of the drums and when you really study the zeppelin records that's pretty much what happens but there's not necessarily a ton of low end on the bass either. I mean, it doesn't sound thin. And then some of those guitar sounds are really thin. They're really bright and thin. And that, so the contrast, and, and that's how, you know, getting this stereo separation and getting depth, it, it, you can see how those records are put together. And the reason I'm talking about this so intently is this was a bit of my template for this record I just mixed with Government Mule. I was trying to make it because of the, some of the writing and some of the songs, it lent itself to this kind of approach. So I dove in and like, well, what makes a Zeppelin record sound like a Zeppelin record? And I didn't import any of them into my sessions, but I listened, you know? And so it's got a little bit of the spirit. Is it exactly the same thing? No, it's never going to be. But, but, but I think there's something about my approach that put it in that spirit. And that's the other great thing, man, listening to records and trying to figure out how they did it. And even if you're completely wrong, at least you're trying something. Yeah. And knowing that as well, like, we, like we've been mentioning, it doesn't come from some artifice, some catch-all trick. Like, ah, we're going to print this on tape. It's, it's the sound of tape that makes it sound like that. It's like, no, nah, it's all the knowledge locked together. But also, once you get into it, it's pretty intuitive. It's like, how do you make the drum sound further away? Well, get the mics further away. End of story. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and and get a drummer that can actually play. So yeah, yeah start yeah. there. 
You are right to keep keep bringing it back to that. It's all about music. We can't just obsess about how we make records because we're trying to make music ultimately. Yeah, and 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 again, though, it does depend on on what your your medium is. If your medium is players, if your medium is samples, or if it's a combination of the two, you know. And that's that's where the most interesting stuff lies to me as well. Using both, you know, I program base versus a bass player who can really play against a you know even if it's against the program track it changes the feel it changes the life of the record yeah yeah and so um but th- there's one final thing we're going to cover but to, to bounce mm-hmm. off that it's something that um, andrew said a few weeks back when i spoke to him he's saying uh because i was for years obsessing over oh that let's say that's kick drum sound i want to make that kick drum sound or i want to make you know it's not about the individual elements it's about how they all go together it's about you know they complementing each other as if they're in a dish you know no one's gonna buy a record for the kick drum sound yeah yeah (laughs) yeah no and and not to say it's not important not to say thinking about it and the way it interacts with everything else is important but think about all your favorite records the first thing you're thinking about is the melody and the vocal performance yeah and well, like you know to give the beatles their fi- final mention of the day it's that you know like the start of get back it's the fact that even though it's not that dynamically like uh it's not a huge dynamic range it sounds like it just creeps in you know yeah so it's all that magic yeah 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 and that so, drum pattern yeah and uh after watching get back by the way i won't have anyone say that ringo's not a good drummer because that guy was a pro he was ridiculous yeah, yeah. he still is he can still do his thing apparently yeah. where did this myth come from that he wasn't any good i don't know i don't know but we've i hopefully we've squashed that permanently yeah, yeah. Yeah, so um, bouncing off uh, the magic and we're going to close off on a very technical point, which is that, that you wanted to mention the distinction between tracks and stems because it's poorly <laughs> understood. <laughs> oh, man. Well, I, I get this a lot from people. Um, the word stems has become synonymous with multi-tracks and, and it's just not the case. A stem is a type of track that, and the whole word came about because of using music for other purposes, like using it on a film. So the proper use of it, the proper terminology is you would make stems, you would make submixes with instruments grouped by type, complete with effects, and you would send those to the dub stage so that the dub stage can have control over elements of the mix if they need to, basically to get it out of the way of the vocal. So you would send, so like for Ali McBeal, I would send drums and or just the whole rhythm section. So drums, bass, guitar, keys with effects, and then the lead vocal, a stereo pair with effects. The background vocals, a stereo pair with effects. If there's a sax solo, if there's horns, a stereo pair with effects. And then this way on the dub stage, they've got a scene going on in a club and they want to loop the music and there's dialogue going on. You don't want a singer going on or you don't want the sax solo or the horns or the horns blasting away. So it's control. So that's what a stem is. So, but what's turned, what's happened is people are, calling multi-tracks individual tracks they're calling them stems 
And then the funniest one to me is send me the dry stems. It's just, it's such, uh, yeah, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense to people who use that word the way it was intended to be used. So, um, so yeah, it's a little soapbox of mine because terminology is important. And as much as this whole thing of music and music making has become a looser kind of experience, your entry level, what you need to really know about sound and recording and terminology and any of this stuff, the bar is so low now, anybody can do it. Anybody can get a copy of Logic and start making music, which is great. But on the other hand, for people probably like myself who've been doing this and who come up from a different path, the language matters because those terms have specific meanings. Um, so, so yeah, I'm, I'm a stickler for, for that word, because if someone's going to send me stems and that was my question, cause you guys were going to send me stems and, and I just got clarified right off the bat. Do you mean, are you sending me submix groups or are you sending me multi-tracks? And, yeah. and so, so yeah. And, and so it doesn't mean to be quite the soapbox, but so what do you feel about this? This is actually, let me throw the question back to you. Do you think it's not a big deal or do you think that, that, that it matters to a certain degree? I think it's a, it's a useful distinction that, that made more flexible our, our interactions with, you know, within the industry with people like you and with our clients, because it really, we, we were, um, not this this business was not built on the shoulders of giants like we were all doing it from scratch all the way from day one most businesses like ours that operate specifically within our industry which is advertising mm -hmm. mostly are started by people who grew up in another company and then stepped out and made their own borrowed some clients uh, we weren't like that we were completely new and so when people <laughs> first said to us it's like great thanks for doing all this stuff for this commercial now send us the stems we were like why do they want all the stems what are they going to do with the snare drum and mm. so, yeah, firstly, it helped for that reason. And then Good. secondly, we were working with a great team at a place over here in London, where we're not in London, but in the UK, called Grand Central Recording Studio. There's a great uh, engineer there called Munzee. And, um, you know, we had not yet gotten the music over the line with the client. And he was saying, don't worry about making it perfect. Just send me the stems and I'll do a rough mix out of that. And then that was magic to hear that come alive. It's like, just takes drums, just takes a bass group and then everything else. And just with that, a good engineer can make something work. Mm -hmm. So yeah, yeah. It's, it's been useful. Good, 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 good. No, I'm glad because I, I, a couple of times I'm like, man, I'm hammering these people and I shouldn't and I don't know them. <laughs> they don't know me and here I am like lecturing them. But, yeah. but thank you for taking it in the spirit. It was, it was given. Well, it's because I'm quite didactic as well at heart. So um. <laughs> I think language is important. I think it matters. And, and, you know, we're so bad at communicating to begin with. We might as well make sure we, you know, we have a couple of terms that, that we all agree upon. So yeah, I, I actually, I, I agree with the broader point there. Yeah. Choice of words is, is really essential. And you can watch people getting tied in knots by their own frustration at not being able to get something across. And so, yeah. yeah articulation is vital uh john paterno uh is presumably available for work do you want to give a little bit of a plug for mixed therapy because i'm interested in this concept yeah uh mix-therapy.com is the website and yeah. it is literally it was born out of a discussion with a friend of mine who who lives in ohio who wanted help mixing 
And so we got into it and, and it's developed and it's literally me trying to get people to listen, trying to pay attention to what they're doing in the moment and understanding their tools, how to use them and how to get better use out of them. And it's not, you know, it's not DOS specific. It's not genre specific. Uh, usually I start people with one of my multi-tracks just because I know what they sound like. And it's amazing how everybody interprets these things differently. Yeah. And it, that part of it's really fascinating, but, but I've had some people who've been very happy and one guy in particular, who's had just, man, his turnaround, it's, you know, and, and I'm not saying it's an overnight thing. You have to practice, you have to do the work. And this one guy in particular, he is really, you can just see the progression. It makes me really happy and he's happy doing it. And um, yeah, it, that that's pretty much, that's the basic gist of it. And what does the time you, frame look like? Do they, do you work with people over a number of sessions or is it one hour? How does it work? I, I do hour and a half sessions. Cause I figure after that, your brain just turns off and I leave it up to the, to the person I'm working with because you know whatever their budget is time frame and I think of them more as like college level jazz lessons so where are you what couple of things can I impart on you that you can kind of develop and then when you're ready come on back and we'll talk about some more stuff so uh, it's not a course structure it's not oh you know you got to learn this you got to learn that or I'm going to talk you through how to use every knob on your dog I'm not interested in doing that I'm interested in getting people to listen and 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 understand the consequences of their decisions so right. and then my regular website is johnpaternomusic.com and that's got the discography and and other contact stuff so yeah I suppose we'll just close off by saying you know thanks for Thanks for uh, taking the time to talk. Thanks for working with us. We're looking forward to the next time we can do it with you. I, I, I had a blast doing it and I really love what you do. So, so yeah, it was super fun. And I'm really glad I was able to do this. Thank you so much for having me. I, I really, I always appreciate getting to do these things and talking with cool people. So thank <laughs> no you. No problem, John. Uh, I'll uh, hit you up if I come over to Jacksonville, Florida. <laughs>